Hello and welcome to the Asimov cast. Short bursts of joy, thoughtfulness and inspiration from the works of Isaac Asimov. I'm Lossie. Follow the show on Twitter, Blue Sky and Instagram at Asimovcast or email to asimovcast at gmail.com. This will be the second part of my discussion with friend of the pod and fellow science fiction scholarly nerd, Tessa. I hope you enjoy it. Um, you mentioned something earlier as well about, um, you know, fear of robots mm-hmm. and, you know, well, they're, they, they're going to kill us because we, we treat them shittily. I think um, the really fascinating thing there is he goes back and forth on that, is that there are there are robots who don't have a concept of being treated poorly because they have no, you know, they have no concept of good or bad or, or right or wrong. And then he starts introducing these thing, these concepts of it makes me feel good as a robot to uh, my my positronic pathways start to feel efficient because I'm doing things in a sensible and effective way that makes logical sense rather than you know being asked to stand on my head, which makes no sense to anyone and is nothing other than cruelty and and. Um, and so I do think he starts to play with that concept of how do you differentiate a, a tool like a microwave uh, from a positronic being? And yeah. at what point does positronic become sentient? Right. And this is kind of where... Uh... I have a couple of things. One is that this is kind of where the idea of scientific or science fiction like literalism meets the metaphor right because if we're talking about ai like then you start getting into like you said the subtleties of language and you know what it, when does it being become sentient as as alan turing said what do we mean by the word think right um you right. know so that that gets into a whole philosophy of like computer science but if we think about it metaphorically we're being asked to think about the ways in which we convince people usually minorities to do work under capitalism right um you know, you're not going to be fed unless you work, you know, and make money. You're mm. you're not going to have a house. You're not going to have health insurance in the U.S. Um, if you don't work. Um, and so, like, you know, thinking about in terms of the metaphor, like, what are the ways in which um, whole groups of people are controlled, right, to do um, disproportionately often um, – back-breaking sometimes labor um, in order just to survive, um, I think is is really interesting to ask. The other thing that came to mind, especially when you were talking about like, what is the difference between a tool and like a sentient being? um, I actually, and of course this was going to happen on this podcast because it's you and me. I was then immediately (laughs) thought about the golems from Discord. Golem. Yeah. Uh, As soon as you started saying that, I was like, I know where she is. Yeah. Which, you know, I've been reading those over again with um, our friend Nigel um, for Nanny Og's book club. And I know you've listened to this episode, but I 
I don't think I realized when I first read those books as a teenager how much the golems were actually androids um, in a lot of ways. I mean, because I just hadn't really put together those ideas in my head. But the way that uh, Terry Pratchett conceives of the golems is very similar to Asimov's androids in some ways. Um, I mean, because they have like the words in their head, right, that um, govern yep. what they do. And some of those words are don't harm humans, right? Or, you know, don't obey every command, right? And um, there is kind of that subtlety, too, because there's those... Um, those stories about like uh, a golem being told to dig a ditch and it like digging like a huge hole, yes. you know, it won't stop digging, you know? And so that's kind of passive resistance, right? In a lot of ways, um, the idea of, okay, well, I'm going to follow your open command, but I'm going to follow it to the letter. Um, but that co conversation comes up in Discworld too, especially in Feet of Clay when the golems are really introduced. Um, because even the character Angua is like, well, that's not a person, that's a tool, um, you yeah. know? And so there is this real sense in those books that it does come down to agency, right? Um, because a lot of the golems, when they do buy themselves out, right? When they do finally own themselves and they are free, which is a Which is an Asimov thing as right. well, right? So again, Bicentennial Man, yeah. he buys himself out of uh, out of things and then it becomes a court case and a legal right. point and but, that's also yeah. by the way a really interesting question about capitalism too like why should beings have to pay money you know what I mean like why is it money that we're yeah. what we're saying is the thing that you have to pay in order to be free um, but the golems a lot of times they just go back to doing whatever it was they were doing before right um, you have a golem yeah. who works at a butcher shop but it's different now because they're choosing to do it as opposed to yeah. being told that they have to do it by the words in their head so there is that yeah. sense in that if you foster a spirit of collaboration instead of a spirit of we are afraid of you so we're going to force you to do this you actually might have a better relationship with the other right um the robot than you would if you're just like you have to obey me no matter what you know so it is interesting to look at it from that perspective yeah, and I think the so it, it, I'm so pleased you brought that up because I hadn't thought about it, and you're 100 percent right. Like the, this massive overlaps between the chem and the um, and the uh, sort of laws and the programming, uh, the concept of, of buying yourself out. In, in bicentennial, it's slightly different in that he doesn't have to buy himself out, but what he has to do is create a legal case to justify why he is able to be not considered at all not considered a, a machine autonomous and um sorry what do you say autonomous it's another thing that's autonomous. there's another book that yeah. explores this too it's called autonomous and that's what they give them when they buy right. themselves out is autonomy yeah right um and yeah so the 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 specific thing that sways the judge in this point I'm going to find it in my notes from, the, from my last episode, the specific quote about freedom, which is uh, when he's asked about uh, by the judge, you know, what could you do if you're free? And he says, perhaps no more than I do now, Your Honor, but with greater joy. It has been said in this courtroom that only a human being can be free. It seems to me that only someone who wishes for freedom can be free. I wish for freedom. And I think that's the... 
that is effectively that dis- that differentiating line, right? Whether it be, it be Golem, whether it be Robot, about the desire to be free is what makes it, or it doesn't excuse cruelty and it doesn't excuse exploitation, but the desire to be free is effectively setting up that dividing line between, I guess, sentience and non-sentience or, or humanity, effectively, and non. That's, that is the dividing line, certainly, that Asimov is, is looking at. Right, and I think, too, that sometimes in robot literature, and it could be very interesting as a discussion, we get very focused on sentience as this measurement of, well, when you gain sentience, that's when we have to start treating you like you're a living being that has rights mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing. And as you said earlier, we treat animals um you know, even though they're not quote unquote sentient, I mean, again, define the word sentient, nobody can do it. Yeah. Um, but like the point, it really does feel a lot of times like we're saying in these stories, okay, you have to prove that you're worthy of being free and treated well before we will, you know, allow you to make decisions yeah. on your own, which again, sounds extremely similar to the ways that some minority groups are treated. You know, you have to prove that yes. you're, you know, good enough for us to accept you, that you're the good kind, right, of um, of yeah. other, whatever fill-in-the-blank you have there. Yeah, and, um, and the sacrifices you have to make, like, you have to be, it's not even good, you have to be better, yeah. you have to be perfect. Absolutely. To become, you, the, the expectation is so unfair and unrealistic, in it, and it's, whether it's immigrant or... Uh, or any other, uh, you know, form of these biases, it is uh, astonishing. And I th- really think that goes back to the point of robot as other, as metaphor for other, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a powerful one. And something else that we sort of both like is X-Men, which yes. also uses that that other as a way of talking about why, you know, why are robots hated and feared? Why are mutants hated and feared? You know, when other you know examples of machines or pets or 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 other people aren't like what is it that causes them to be singled out yeah and i think i think also the way we talk about robots often reflects um the ways in which certain people are dehumanized so they can be exploited um, so again, you know, saying that a robot's just a tool, right? I don't have to treat it mm. as if it has rights or, you know, needs anything because it's just a tool. You'll notice that sorts of like la- that sort of language creep into discourse around certain groups of people in order to exploit them for their um, um, their labor or even just to get rid of them altogether. But usually, it's for labor. Um, and so it, it is interesting that the robotics metaphor works so well because we do think of robots as being mechanical, as being things, um, as being not human. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's really interesting um, to me to think about in terms of the metaphor itself. Yeah, the one thing we, we perhaps haven't touched on on that um, as much, yeah, uh, we've talked about Asimov's should we say shortcomings in of imagination when it comes to gender of his protagonist and his characters, but gender of of robots and of AI, I think, is fascinating in that as well. Yes. Um, the vast 
the vast majority of his robots are generally gendered male. There are a couple of exceptions. Um, in the story Sally, the um, the sort of estate cars are male and the convertibles are female, which is an odd one. Um <laughs> The, the, his one sex bot that, that I've come across so far is male sex bot, uh, to be I fair. I mean, to be fair. Uh, albeit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels like uh, the sex toy uh, <laughs> Maybe a little <laughs> progress. Does, <laughs> maybe. We're not maybe talking about, like, there. weird science levels of, uh, you know, exploitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's also like the robot is given agency in a way that uh, perhaps... Uh, classic sex spots are no. not um and then there is um in the susan calvin story feminine intuition uh they look to create an intuitive robot and the group of white men go well make it female so that the humans will accept it um and susan calvin is as you would expect appropriately uh dis, dis- missive of uh, all of these awful people in the way they, <laughs> they uh, create that uh, that robot but um uh it, it is interesting to see the application or, or the the need to gender robots in ways that logically make no sense these are not creatures created with genitals they have none they have no nothing to them so why are we assigning them that what is it what does it say about the writers and the readers that that we gender i mean robots in such i way? think that part of it is that we're taught from such a young age to sort uh beings into categories of gender um i mean even animals right like you know every time there's a you know somebody meets a dog they're like is it a he or she you know or like it's like we have this obsession with knowing like what the gender is dogs don't care about gender like they just don't and i don't think robots do either <laughs> um like it's it would be it would be very interesting to me um for someone to dig into some of the ways in which robots in science fiction envision their own gender and some people have done it um Mm. a little bit part of it i think comes down to labor again um because as you pointed out um there are gendered forms of labor um in terms of social constructs so to go to like blade runner for an example um you have like a soldier and he's a man but then you have a sex worker and she's a woman you know and like there's there's very much this like idea of gendered work or if you have a a robot who is living in the house maybe it's more likely that they're a woman you know because that's where women generally do their work you know whereas somebody who is you know out farming might be a man um at the end of the day i just don't think that robots care about that um I mean, it would be very hard to convince me that they do care about it. I think what they're probably reacting to in any given sci-fi narrative, unless otherwise specified, is an idea of gender as something that has either been programmed into them or it's just everyone treats me as this gender, so it's just easier to perform this gender this way. Um, And Mm. that actually comes up in this book that I mentioned before that I actually think you would really enjoy um, called Autonomous by Anna Lee Newitz. so she wrote this book um, a while ago, and she 
I wrote about it. I'm sorry, they. They wrote this book a while ago, and I wrote about it in my dissertation. But among a lot of really interesting ideas about robots that she brings up, one of them is this idea of gender, because the main robot in the series, or in the book, Paladin, basically is referred to as male. The robot Hmm. itself doesn't really correct people, but when asked about its gender at one point, basically said, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, you can, sure, like, refer to me as a he, that's fine, whatever. Um, But then the paladin starts to form this relationship that quickly becomes sexual with his partner, um, who starts, who is a man, who starts calling paladin she- in response to this relationship. Mm. So Paladin starts using the pronoun she. Um, And again, like you can say like, well, is that um, internalized homophobia on the part of like his partner or her partner or whatever? Is it, you know, um, you know, is it actually a core part of Paladin's identity for her to start using these pronouns? Um, You know, and so there's a lot of these like types of questions because it really doesn't seem like Paladin actually cares about gender in this way, but she inherently understands that gender is important to her partner. And so she's going yeah. to go along with whatever he wants, you know, her to be gendered as. She, she's a, she's a service. Yeah, worker. basically. <laughs> um, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's a fascinating concept um, to think about gender in robots, because if gender is a performance, which generally we've come to agree that it is in many ways, um, why are we making robots perform it for us? You know, is it because Mm. we feel more comfortable if we can identify, you know, a robot as gendered or not gendered? Um, And even the stuff that we read into gender, like Robbie the robot is like egg-shaped, like does not look like Mm. a human at all, but is called he because he has a male-sounding voice. Um, You know, it's it's interesting to me. Right. And that reminds me of Janet from The Good Place, right? Like they have the name Janet, but the response is always not a girl, not a robot, yeah. right? Yeah. To to that. They have a clear sense of who they are and it is not uh, gendered and it is not, um, but yet they are sort of performing or or slipping into this perfor- uh, performance of, or perceived performance of, uh, of gender. Yeah, I think, I think that's fascinating too that we also assume that robots would... I don't want to say the word evolve necessarily. I think that in most science fiction, it's sort of a balance between being created and then evolving after creation. Um, But we tend to think like, oh, well, they would want to be like us or they would think like us. And like the truth of the matter is why? Why would we assume that is a thing that would happen? Mm. Um, They may have a very different um, view of the world than we do or different ways of sorting information than we do. Um, so it, it is interesting that gender seems to be this core concept to our identity that we keep trying to project on other beings that might not necessarily be that important to them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two sides to it. I think there's the general human anthropomorphization mm-hmm. of yeah. inanimate objects or animal objects for that matter. And then there is, back to the earlier point, that if you are a robot and the only information you are able to consume to start drawing, starting to draw your own conclusions is 6,000 years of human history, you're going to consume gendered 
history and you don't know that you don't know that reading it unless you understand the importance for whatever reason that humans have put on gender uh in not all not not the entirety but in the majority over the last few thousand years of certainly of on thousand years of or less of, of written literature so kind um of terrifying actually i think again I know, like that's kind of like um yeah. that's kind of like someone consuming all of our our biases right like consuming everything about gender yeah. like i better make sure there's some judith butler in there like you know like i don't want this robot assuming things about gender that people have assumed throughout history this is my problem with yeah. ai right <laughs> like the data set that feeds in is biased and any data set in the whole entirety of human history so unless you program to avoid those biases which means having an honest conversation about what they might be and unless you're willing to change and flex and adapt it, then you're always going to revert to this mean of this wealth of data, which is biased from history towards white European straight men. Right. Well, let's say that they were straight. We don't know. Maybe maybe some of them were good friends with each other. But um... Yeah, well, and this also kind of gets into a underlying concept as well of body or embodiment, um, because... Mm. Uh, with the exception of some of the first, very first robots, Asimov, for the most part, his bots are kind of human looking, like they are anthropomorphized, yes. um, which again, we can ask the question why. Um, and I think to your point, it's because humans like to look at things that look like us or that are anthropomorphized in some way. Um, there was like a study done a while back about how um, humans prefer photographs with faces, even if it's like not someone they know like if they're scrolling through like a list of articles they're more likely to pick one with an image of a face um next to it right um so there's there's that kind of aspect to it but embodiment actually is a huge deal um when talking about humans i mean the different ways that we are embodied affect the way that we are treated they affect the way that we experience the world and this goes back to the ways in which white european males for a long time in history to this day um often see themselves as the mold for what is a human um and mm -hmm. other people are the other right and so they're devalued or they're less human or they're um the post-human as it were for some um in some formulations and so it is interesting the ways in which having a human body or a human-like body might affect the way that a robot engages with the world, um, intentionally or not, um, because they might actually pick up on certain human ways of experience in the world just through that experience of being embodied in that way. A hundred percent. And I think uh, the most insidious part of it is that, that people just don't even realize it. Like, um, I'm reminded of, do you know the comic saga? You must know the comic saga. Yes, I love the comic saga. Yeah. So so when, when that was first being created between Brian K. Vaughan and, and Fiona Staples, um, I've read, I can't remember when I read an article about this, but I remember reading an article where they were interviewing Brian K. Vaughan about it. And he said, uh, they were asking about the designs and what, what information he gave to Fiona Staples about how the character should look. And that he said to her, the only thing I want is I don't want the lead female character to be a redhead. And 
uh, Fiona's response was, you know, she doesn't have to be white. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't to say that there aren't, you know, there aren't redheads in, in other nations, but um, other races even. But you can see where his intentional bias was. He was conceiving this person as white and red hair. And he was saying, you know, I've got a Jean Grey. I've got a, how, I've got a Mary Jane Park, you know, um, from Spider-Man. I've got all of these other classic fiery redheads from Marvel and DC Comics. I don't want... I don't, I want, you know, I'm, I'm perceiving this as just, I don't want a redhead. And she was like, actually, you're already excluding purely. And again, I don't, I don't attribute any malice in any of this, right? This is societal and it is because we are ourselves the product of the information that is fed to us. However much we want to challenge that and we have to be open towards doing that. We, we will have these biases. So got you know what hope what hope something coming to it with completely fresh eyes that just views it as um this is a some some total of truth and information about the human race is what has been published without any concept of of the bias that would have gone into the historical bias that would have that's gone the thing it. about ai i'm not sure i want them to learn from us um but like no. i mean that that is kind of the answer to some of these so that's the only data they I have know, exactly right? there is no other like, data set so yeah it's but yeah. that's that is a little bit terrifying to think about um in terms of just like them wholesale like taking on you know all of that information um but to kind of like get really philosophical for a minute i it is interesting to me. I, I really like that story about um, Brian K. Vaughn. I hadn't heard it before um, because in a lot of ways, white men, especially European white men or or rich white men, you know, like you, you get smaller and smaller the more you, you kind of put that on. But mm. somehow they have an outsized effect on the world. Um, you know, they're the only ones who don't have to think about their bodies on like a daily basis because they are the norm. So like when, for an example, when Descartes says, you know, I think, therefore I am, he's really privileging um, thought, right? He's really privileging the yeah. intangible side of being human, but he's completely ignoring the body. And in fact, if you read more Descartes, you'll realize that he thought bodies were like holding humans back, basically. Like they were like animals or machines or like whatever. Um, very disturbing guy, Descartes, in some ways. Um, but... The thing is, though, is that a lot of people like that don't have to think about bodies. So when they say things like, I don't want her to have red hair or something like that, they're not thinking about how that affects necessarily her race or the way that it lo- her, she looks. Whereas people um, who are not that, uh, women, minorities, um, people who are disabled, people who are queer, um, we have to think about our bodies all the time, right? We have to think about them every single day. Um, because those are things; those are the things that are excluding us um, from, you know, that those kind of the privileges of the norm. Uh, obviously, on different levels and different sliding scales. But it is interesting to me that there is this sense, especially in science fiction and AI discourse. And this is one of the things I love about Asimov, is that a lot of sci-fi, especially cyberpunk, is obsessed with leaving behind the body. Like, we're going to upload our brains mm. into a computer and um, that's going to make us even more powerful and we'll be immortal and we'll have all this. But they never think about the fact that by losing your body, you are actually losing yourself in a lot of ways. That that whatever that mm. thing is, it is no longer you um, because mm. a human being is both things. Um, but 
what I love about Asimov is that he, this is not a question for him. Like his ideas about robots very much consider things about embodiment and, um, you know, like what are the, what is the relationship between programming and the body? And, you know, what, what is that, what does that all add up to at the end of the day? And so you, he does it mainly in the context of robots, but you can take those ideas and apply them to humans as well. Um, The idea of like, what does a human add up to at the end? You know, when we talk about the interactions between the body and the way that we're programmed to put quotes around that, um, you know, because we are programmed, like you said, in a lot of ways um, as well. Yeah. So there are ways in which you can take some of his ideas and transpose them back onto to people as well. Yeah, and maybe maybe we'll touch a little bit further on this subject and then potentially... Yeah, sorry, I'm keeping you late. <laughs> for... Oh, no, 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 it's fascinating. I'm, I'm very, very glad. Uh, but I think let's let's maybe talk about that tactile nature of humanity or robotity or or ai um and what it means to have that physical interaction because again asimov touches on it a little bit in some of his later stories of this more of the concept of what about a computer doing things or or a computer central machine that controls you know appendages that really no longer have autonomy or or, uh, independent intelligence because his original conceit of robots were these purely autonomous units who made their own decisions within the structure of their of their programming and didn't weren't controlled by a central thing and and had the physical responses of a sensor and you know whether it be a sensor and being aware of a of a potential chemical acid on a foreign uh, or on a you know inter interstellar world and what impact that would have on, the, on their third law self preservation or a sensor and being aware of heat or cold or life or speech or or all of these uh, these sort of inputs of data sets so as well as the data set of everything that's come before you like the data set of the now and and how that all comes in the separation of that from um the very cold uh lack of that the very um what's the word i'm looking for the the clinical uh computer which is purely a logic tree, which is not, which is not receiving, not receiving stimulus that it is affected by is purely processing data. Right. And so there is that sense of, does this computer have skin in the game? Really? You know, like, do you know, yeah. does it, um, embodiment in a lot of ways does put you at risk. Um, and so, you know, that does make sense to me, this idea that like a computer in a server room somewhere is going to interpret those laws perhaps differently than, um, a robot who's mm. doing dangerous work on Mars, you know, or something like that. Um, I think there are two really good examples in other sci-fi um, texts, I guess, that um, could maybe also illustrate, like, some of the issues that you're kind of talking about. Um, one would be another thing that we both really like, which is Mass Effect, um, which has the Geth, mm. who are a... Um, they're an AI species, but they, what's interesting is that in the second game, you realize that they are, they are individual programs and those are actually what the Geth are, but they have bodies as well. Um, and so 
but they don't treat their bodies necessarily the same way that like a human would treat their bodies. And the fact is that they're all also interfaced with each other all the time. Um, and so the way that they come to decisions as a species is that they form a consensus, right? They like present, here are all mm. the ideas. This is what we're going to do, which is a very like collaborative, non-human way of going about um, making decisions. And so that I think is another example of how embodiment can kind of change the ways in which um, you act, right? Or the ways in which you take risks or you conceive of yourself as an individual person um, because the Geth don't value individuality the same way that like a human does um, because humans, unless you're living in sense eight, we're not telepathic. And so, you know, there is this sense <laughs> oh. <laughs> But but I wish oh, we I wish, wish we, we were, were all having yeah. orgies in <laughs> But we're not we're not connected the same way, and so we um, treat each other differently than say the Geth might. Right? They're a lot more collaborative. Hmm. They're a lot more. Um, they talk to each other more. They don't value individuality as much as they value um, themselves as a species. Um, but they still do have things like empathy or they can have things like empathy for other species because they understand um, taking care of each other in that way. Um, so that's that's one example of how like embodiment might foster different ideas of what it means to be alive or what it means to um, have a body. The other one that I immediately thought of, um, it, it's interesting because um, Whenever the idea of AI comes up, we like to think of it as a purely like Im a purely informational being, right? It's all just a language, it's all just data sets, it's all it's just kind of there. But the truth is you can't have an AI without some form of embodiment even if it's just a computer server, right? Um, it has to be housed mm. somewhere. There's no such thing as an AI just like uh, they're not ghosts. Like they're not wandering around, you know, without a body. Um, and I was you know, I was trying to make a list of uh, films to write about for Movie John for this ongoing thing that I have. And my, like, very um, arbitrary dividing line for, like, what got in and what didn't was, well, I want it to look like a human. Like, I want it to be an Android, not, like, you know, a computer server, mm -hmm. because otherwise that's just, like, way too many movies to, like, talk about. Um, and one of the movies that fell on the non-embodied side of the line originally was uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, because I yeah. was, like... Well, Hal, he doesn't look like a human, so he's not an android. He is artificial intelligence, but and technically the ship is his body. But, you know, it's mm. it's not going to work for what I'm trying to do. Well, I actually went to go see 2001 A Space Odyssey again um, this last week in New York City. They were showing a, um, um, a 70 millimeter oh, cool. um, production of it. Oh, it was wow. gorgeous. It was wonderful. Um, I love that movie so much. And I realized that Hal not only has a body, but it is anthropomorphized in the film because his um, little sensor looks like an eye. And he, and he oh, has yeah. hands that, you know, they are like technically the little ship grabber hands, but he has like hands as well. And so and now I'm gonna have to write about that movie. Um, oh, well. Um, so like, it's, <laughs> oh, no oh my. But like, it is interesting to me that even something like Hal, who is as close to like a disembodied AI as you can get, his body still affects the way that he interacts with the world. Like the fact that he has all these eyes around the mm. ship and he can see everything in the ship. You know, he can even see like their lip movements when they're trying to like have a conversation without him. You know, the, the fact that he can essentially kill one of them um, using the body of the ship, you know, it, it's, 
it does affect embodiment does affect the way that beings interact with the world and you can see that in humans but even if we think about other kinds of bodies the kind of body that that entity has is going to change the way that it acts in relation to other people and in relationship to itself um so that again was a long-winded way of saying i agree with you (laughs) (laughs) but no i think so so the other science fiction trope i would I would take up in the, along the lines of this. And I think it has a tendency more towards the villain or horror end of the science fiction trope is an AI that moves bodies yes. that, that, that is not dependent on a single server, but that can jump like a virus from place to place that is not, um, you know, restricted. And, and some of this is the Borg in Next Generation, certainly early doors before you started getting individualized Borg, like the Borg Queen, and, and they started making it into more of a, you know, a metaphor for bees or whatever they <laughs> wanted to do with it. Um, or, um, and, and actually I was in a, in a discussion uh, with Elise on the True Blood podcast that we both do together bang bangers the other day i was talking about a movie uh, with denzel washington about a demon a serial killer demon that can basically hop between any life form as long as there's a life form within uh, effectively earshot of it when it dies it can jump bodies and i found that that you mentioned you know it's not a ghost but like that ghost in the machine yeah which can move wherever because it's non, it is not embodied, it's not restricted to that single instance, um, is a horror Yeah, trope. it is. I think it's always the, almost always the villain, right? There's no good vir- computer viruses, right? right? Um, most of the time, though, if you ones. really think about it, it's still moving physically, though, because it's moving on like Wi-Fi or radio waves or like something, right? right? I mean, not the demon. I don't know how the demon jumps. There's, but there's like... always some. There's always something they can block right. it, right? Whether it's like Battlestar Galactica's, like we don't have networked computers, therefore the Cylons can't spread. Or, or... have you seen there's... the most recent yeah. Mission Impossible film? Okay, I well then I won't no. talk about that. Um, those of you who have seen it, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, but like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like this idea of like, oh, we have to go analog because like this AI is like, uh, like Ultron, um, for an example, in Age of Ultron is kind of the same way. Yeah. Um, but if you think about yeah, that, yeah. again, the embodiment, the the embodiment or the lack of stable embodiment still affects the way that it treat it interacts with people as well. Mm-hmm. Even going back to the Borg, like you said, um, to compare the Borg to Data, Data isn't networked to a lot of bodies. He exists literally in the one body um, for the most part versus the Borg who treats bodies as if they are disposable because they only have, they always have more, right? It's like, we're not going to run out, yeah. right? Of bodies. And so it is a very interesting um, comparison. But, and it's also, the Borg is also like harvesting human beings to become, they're not creating robots from right. the ground they're, up, they're, they're kind of using humans like hardware um like yeah. they're yeah, yeah. they're servers like they're different servers they, they install the requisite uh agents and software that they need and then they can use them as part of their wider right. network um but but i think next gen and star trek rapidly like lost control of exactly what it wanted to do <laughs> with the book so i found um, them terrifying and then i would child, say the, so 
mission accomplished. <laughs> oh yeah, I agree. But I but I think that concept of a slippery, yeah. um, you know, intangible foe that you can't pin down because it could just move. Well, move and that's why it was terrifying because it was is, like uh, you know you you could kill a Borg. And then you would just have three more, but those three more will have learned from the way that you killed the first one. And so you can't kill them that way. Like, that's just terrifying. It's like the relentlessness right. of this yeah. idea of we're just going to throw bodies yeah. at you until you give up or die or whatever, right. you know? And that's also like the Sentinels and X-Men, it's Terminator yeah. 2, it, or the T-1000, it's Agent Smith in the Matrix, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's this learning creature that... If you defeat it, all it does is jump to another host. Like you can't, you have to, you have to totally change the concept of a one-in-one -one engagement, right? In order to defeat you, this, like it's you'll um, notice with Agent Smith, they be, he becomes more insane and unstable as he does that, um, which I think yeah. is a deliberate choice on their part to say that this actually does change who he is, like as a person or as a program. To to commit this like replication of himself in this way. Yeah, I think I guess the difference is like in the first film he is an independent program that can jump bodies right. and after that he's a self-replicating hegemon hegemonizing yeah. swarm <laughs> for one of a to, to choose a Ian M Banks term uh, for for a, for a bad life form, right? Like he wants to make everything himself. Yeah. Right, so that that and um, and actually, Ian M. Banks is a great example of a, of an AI at the other end of the spectrum, which is they exist as cores. They have is this physical concept, but then they are extremely independent. They they have, you know, quite human responses, quite emotional responses to certain circumstances. They're very each each AI is independent but they want different things. They're just massively more capable. And that, that reminds me more of like the AIs you see in Neuromancer, mm. right? Like the winter mutes uh, of the world. So, you know, massively capable, but just wanting completely different things from, from humans. Yeah, and I think actually too, and this kind of brings us all the way back to the beginning, is what I think I really loved about the fourth Matrix movie, um, which honestly I think might be the best Matrix movie. It is definitely up there with the first one for me. Um, was this idea that we kind of deconstructed the idea of the AI as the enemy, um, which is very much what it was in the first mm. film. Um, and the city that Niobe has created is equal parts um, AI with different forms of phys physical bodies. Um, and human, and they are collaborating together to make, you know, this livable city that they can all live in. To me, that is the antithesis of the three laws. Um, that is the idea of, of actually encouraging other beings to collaborate with humans in their own ways for a yeah. mutual common goal. Um, and, you know, she even says we couldn't have done all these things without them. Like it would have been impossible. Um, so it's not even yeah. like we're, we're saying like, you know, they won't perform impossible tasks or, or difficult labor or whatever. But the idea of just treating them like they're equals, I think that very much represents sort of the antithesis of what Asimov is talking about. And again, I think that's purposeful. I think Asimov is specifically trying to talk about robots in that way. 
Yeah, and I would again, I'd go back to Ian M. Banks on this, right? The concept of the culture is this uh, synthesis mm-hmm. of humanity and these AI minds, and then these drones, which are like small little robot-y type AIs as well, and they're all working together, and mostly the humans being empowered to just be hedonistic weirdos, <laughs> apart from the few ones who want to be... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I, who can, like, change gender if they want and uh, grow wings if they want and whatever. But um, some of them are just bored and want to, like, be involved in foreign politics, basically. Yeah. And that's the that's where it comes in. So, yeah, I, I agree. And I think um, and I think maybe let that's a great place to finish yeah. this. So rather than the... Um, the general fears of AI, the the some of the flaws of the way they've been interpreting, like the concept of collaboration and mutual work, whether it be with a true AI or robot, or whether it be with the metaphorical AI or robot, which is the other, which is your colleagues, which is your friends, which is your your people that you don't know yet. Um, uh that is the way to to build i mean utopia means no place so let's not say that but to bit to start to build towards more of that that future place where we where things are improving rather than to contract in the fear and the restriction of the three laws uh just to kind of to back you up there's a really great quote by uh Lalita Imarisha who did um She's, she's a science fiction writer. She's done a lot of collections of sci-fi as well. But she basically said every single act of activism, of imagining a better future, is the act of making science fiction. And I think that that's a really good way of thinking about, or wrapping up even this topic. This idea of anytime you envision, like, I'm going to work towards making things better, or I'm going to do this to make things better, you are actually also doing science fiction, um, which I think is great. I think that's a perfect way to leave it and uh, it almost makes it look like we planned that <laughs> we're uh, just that good <laughs> we're, we're just that good and thank you for joining us you can find me at Lozymandius on Blue Sky you can find the podcast on Blue Sky Twitter and Instagram at Asimovcast the theme music is courtesy of Alexei Chastillon from Pixabay please email your thoughts what inspires you and where you find joy in Asimov or any other science fiction to asimovcast at gmail.com Tessa where can people find you? You can find me on Blue Sky at The Bi Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast that I've already shouted out on this show, Nanny Og's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. We just, as of recording this, we just yesterday released the uh, 31st episode, which is like insane to me that we're that far along uh (laughs) on monstrous regiments um so you can find that um on blue sky at nanny ogs book club and you can find that nanny ogs book club wherever you get your podcasts uh i also do a horny chaotic podcast about the horny chaotic hbo show true blood with my friends and tessa has been a guest it's a great podcast so please check out Please check out uh, Fangbangers podcast. That's with a Z. And I'll be back in three or four weeks to cover 
the stories covered in the first two seasons of the Apple Plus TV show Foundation. Go now. Do not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm.